Uh, so welcome to the uh, Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas. Uh, and today we have a very special guest, Malika Carpenter. Malika, you do so many amazing things. I'm going to let you do your rundown and bio because I don't want to like miss nothing. So you, you tell the good folks what you're into. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So uh, professionally, I am a content strategist. I've been doing that over the past um, six years and really pro- like professionally with that title, right? But the content strategy has probably been something that's been in my career for, for well over a decade. And um, through my uh, consultancy, Sacred Media Group, I help people and companies really uh articulate their brand story, craft what that is, and then strategically um, share that through different means of content um, digitally, really. And a lot of my um, practice now has been really more focused on um, building content strategy practices within organizations, basically empowering the teams to do this. Because nine times out of 10, they're already doing it, but how can I help them do it in a structured and sustainable uh, way? So for a while I was uh, working independently. And so I've worked with a range of different companies, um, whether they be tech startups um, that have a SaaS product or whether they be museums um, or now most recently in government. And so um, in government, I've been working with an agency called 18F. And really it is an agency that sits within the government and it um, helps government agencies build and develop and even acquire digital products. So I'm doing content strategy work um, in that new lane. And that is that has been um, quite fascinating to understand how important the language that we use for helping the public understand services that are available to them, as well as building tools and systems that allow government workers to work more efficiently. That means that they're getting you the benefits and the services more efficiently. And so with that realization, I've been quite excited to see how I can use my superpowers to uh, make government services better for the public. Um, And then when I'm not doing that, I love to unite people um, with laughter, people from all different backgrounds, racially, religious, gender, what have you. I like to unite people together um, using comedy. And so I have a comedy show that uh, I host and produce called Tokens Are Us. And Tokens Are Us um, kind of flips the comedy scene a little bit. And um, particularly what I realized as I was getting into the Philly comedy scene, seen through improv is that a lot of the shows and the teams were very white with like the one token, hey, me playing on the improv team. So Tokens Are Us is sort of my play on that where um, uh, some amazing comedians of color um, from all different ethnic backgrounds come together on the stage. And we talk about uh, race, ethnicity, and identity in America in a very fun way. We do a series of talk and game segments to get that going. Um, And what's been so rewarding, David, about uh, doing uh, this show is the fact that when I was able to do it live, so pre-COVID, when I was able to do it in front of a live audience, when you look out into the audience, you literally see every different type of person sitting next to each other, Black, white, Asian, Muslim, Christian, um, non-binary, gay, lesbian, what have you all sitting next to each other and you won't realize, but you're laughing at the same things. There's times where we can kind of like break out and let people talk. And I'm watching people who normally probably wouldn't really talk to each other or hang out with each other like that if it wasn't for this environment. So that has been super rewarding. 
Um, I have been able to do it the one time in uh, the quarantine for Juneteenth, which was an amazing show, just highlighting um, Black male comedians. And I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to to, to do it again um, very soon. But yeah, that has been all of the, the range of things. But what I will say is what ties all those things together is that at the heart of what I do, um, I'm a storyteller. And I really do believe that Stories help to bring people together. It bridges understanding. Um, it unites us. And that is what I am all about. Um, so whether it's my professional work or, you know, personal things, I really just like to kind of elevate people's stories so that we can be more connected. So that's a little bit about me. It's a little bit. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just a couple of things, you know. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that, the tokens arrest, because you've told me stories about how just through the practice of bringing these comedians together and having them, you know, do this work, like it's helped you challenge some of your own assumptions. Like you've walked in thinking one thing and walked out like completely, you know, blowing your mind about some stuff. Can you tell me a little bit of what that experience has been like? Absolutely. Okay. So I can tell you about the very first time that I ran the show and this was early 2018. And so I um, I had gotten a lineup of four comedians. One of my comedians was um, Latino. So he's South, uh, from South America um, and first generation, right? And so I was like, cool. So I usually have this segment that says, what would get your black card revoked? And when I came to him, I was like, oh, let me mix it up. I was like, okay, so for you, it might not be a black car, but like as, you know, what will get your Latino card, you know, or brown card or whatever you want to call it, card revoked. And he was like, well, that doesn't really come up as much as the many times that I've gotten my gay card revoked. And I literally, like, I think, I don't know if anyone else could tell, but my knees did a mini buckle because I was like, yo, I did not even plan for that in my any of my segments, right? But I realized that like there's intersectionality in our identities, particularly for people of color. And like, how does that, how does that shape their experience, their lived experiences in the world? So I was like, yes, you know? So that was something that um, like really opened my eyes because I was looking at it more in terms of race and ethnicity and, 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 and that, but then it made me realize that like, oh, you can be a token in a number of different contexts if we're talking even about religion and things like that. So it, it definitely opened me up to think about the different types of panels I could potentially have on the show. Um, in addition to that, uh, I had partnered with um, three other Philly comedians and we put on a, um, a, a comedy festival. It was like a two-day festival where it was sort of like for us, by, by us, right? right? So um, uh, black and brown comedians um, who produce shows in Philly. And there's a lot of them that just normally like their show ends up at like an odd hour. So that it's not kind of like very well promoted. We were like, we're going to come all together on like one lineup and do this show. So when we had our, um, our first uh, the, the first day of events, I remember just kind of greeting all the different comedians who were a part of it and just saying like, thank you so much for being on this lineup and, and doing this and this and that. And I remember greeting a, a comedian and I missed heard this person, but they had asked me, oh, what are your pronouns? And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> They're like, what are your pronouns? And in my mind, 
Dave. Like I had this like fly blue, like furry vest and this lip and this in my braids because I had just gotten back from Nigeria. And I was like, I'm a goddess. I'm a queen out here. What are you talking about? I'm obviously she, her, I'm a woman. But this is what I'm thinking in my mind. But I was like, wait, what? And so then this person says, okay, so if you were standing across the room, would you be he, him, she, her, they, them? And I was like, I'm she, her. Like in my mind, I'm say- like, I'm saying it to her, I'm she, her. But in my mind, I'm like, I'm she, her, duh. Like- <laughs> <laughs> and then this person goes, oh, okay, I'm they, them. And I was like, oh, okay. And I had never at that point heard of it. I've mm-hmm. never heard of it. So I was like, okay, cool. Got it. And then for it's like for the whole rest of that year, because that happened the, the beginning of last year, for the whole rest of that year, like, like I was hearing more of that. When I went to conferences, I was hearing that. I was learning more. And I'm, I still am. Like there's mm-hmm. individuals that I work with that have they, them pronouns that I have to proactively think about, you know, um, and sometimes be corrected and, of course, apologize. But it's like that is something for me that is new. And because I, because of doing Tokens Are Us and because of taking this concerted effort to use comedy to explore inclusion and explore um, how, we, how we can come together and explore the difference in us, it has helped me learn so much, you know? Um, and it's like for comedians, you know, for them, especially when they do stand-up, it's like they're using all of their lived experiences to sort of shape and give you a, a, a perspective and lens into the world. And so that's what I love so much about comedy. And that's why I've created tokens to allow them to do that because they're just experts at being able to see themselves and to see us and to see the nuances and, and the absurdities in, <laughs> in the world and who better to do that than them. And so I've learned so much from the other comedians that I've had on my show and feature. And I've, I'm continually trying to challenge myself to learn more, um, but to do, but to do so in a way that is respectful, you know what I yeah. mean? So, because that's the other part of it, right? Like you can have a show like Tokens Are Us and then you can, the, the last thing that I want to do is inadvertently tokenize someone. And mm-hmm. so uh, for quite some time, I've been thinking about like, what does an LGBTQ like lineup on my show look like? What would those segments be? And how do I make sure I craft segments in a way that that doesn't um, do any harm, really, but also kind of opens up the conversation for people to explore if they don't understand what this means. And um, when I do get around to doing that, I have every intention of like, co-planning and creating that with whoever would be a part of that lineup so that it is you you know it's it's informed I'm coming into it informed and not using comedy to harm so yeah and that's I think that's a really interesting discussion because you know on this show and we'll probably talk about it later on this particular episode but I've been talking a lot this season about sort of the responsibility doing doing design responsibly which often means challenging your own assumptions and making sure that your assumptions aren't going to you know, hurt somebody. And I was recently having a discussion with someone about, well, how does that translate into art? Because when you're doing art, you're not necessarily doing user research, right? You're not necessarily have this particular audience in mind and you're not trying to help them accomplish a task, right? You're trying to express something. And it really became more about um, 
Yes, but even then you want to be informed. I think it was the word used. That was kind of the word used too. You want to do that in an informed way so that you have intentionality about it, right? So you're not sort of, even if you say, I'm going to use this word, you at least understand the history of that word. You understand the context of it and what happens when you put it in the context you're going to use, right? Um, so that if you are doing the thing, I mean, hey, maybe you really do want to be bigoted, but at least know that you're doing that, right? <laughs> like, um, but I think that that's an interesting dichotomy, though, and I'm curious to hear your take on it, because like, it seems like respect and comedy can sort of be like, well, no, those two don't go together. But I, I'd be curious to hear how you think about that. Yeah, I actually think that they do, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think I think people tend to think, oh, this is my mic, my time, I can let it rip. And there is a certain uh, freedom in that. But at the same time, when you are particularly, when, when you're making someone the butt of the joke, mm -hmm. like, that's when it becomes problematic. And I'll tell you, comedians who take what they do very seriously and... They they point that out and clown that all the time. There's a there's a couple uh, Philly comedians that have been on my show and that I follow, and I constantly see them talking about if you're on stage literally giving a bigoted rant, that is not your open mic time because nowhere in there did you do anything artful with comedy. Nowhere in there was your punchline, and you know there's an art to to what you do, and mm -hmm. if none of that's in there and it's just your rant or you ranting about your political stance and trying to fit it in into a joke format, like that's no, you're one, you're not even respecting the art. <laughs> First of all, two, you're not respecting people. And three, the people who do do this tastefully, you know, like, and not tastefully, but do it masterfully. That's sort of what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Way, skillfully. That is the word. There we go. There we go. Words do it in a way that's skillful, like, we'll call you on that because they know when there is no skill level in, in what's being being said. So I think that, like, um, and, and again, like, comedy is very much someone's perspective. So someone in, in a comedic sense could say something that makes you feel uncomfortable, can have a, a, t a type of comedy where you're like, oh, that's too much. But you don't walk away feeling like fundamentally as a person disrespected. And yeah. that's like a very, that's the, that I feel like that's the line. You can be like, I agree to disagree with you, but like, you're not fundamentally trying to disrespect me, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I know there are comedians, like what you're saying about the art of it, right? I know there are comedians, like I'll give you an example, like uh, John Mulaney in one of his specials, like does a black voice, right? Mm -hmm. And a couple of them actually. And I have watched these specials many times and I've never felt offended. And I, I can't point to why, because I can have any number of other comedians who do a black voice. I'm like, really? <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about the context he's using, the, the art of it, where it's sort of like, that is genuinely funny. And I, I, I'm not taking any offense at this. And I think part of it is, he, you, at no point do you feel he's doing it in a way that's disrespectful. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree. There's absolutely the craft there. The other thing I want to talk about um, before we get more into the content strategy stuff is the other thing I've really been thinking a lot about lately in terms of comedy is this notion of power, because comedy can be an amazing way. And in fact, I almost feel it is its social purpose, right, to dissect and dismantle and interrogate power. And I wonder how like that plays into the like, 
who is allowed to be the butt of the joke, right? And and when is that sort of like, so I'm curious if you've sort of had any insights or like thoughts about like how power plays into, you know, the art of comedy and, and how you, you know, perform. Yeah, I think, I mean, there is, what comes to mind as you were describing that is like recently I saw, um, I saw like a documentary piece on, YouTube that was like Dave Chappelle and um, it was like it was Dave Chappelle and then he later had this opportunity to go speak to Maya Angelou and they like connected at some point or whatever anyway and the first piece where he was sort of talking about like um, his work the one thing that he says is like when I get on the stage and the spotlight is on me and I have this microphone like like you're essentially captivating that audience to be like all eyes literally are on you in that moment. And there is something, especially if you're a performer of any way, even if you're a speaker, right? Like Dave, you're a speaker. So, so you can understand this ability to be able to command a room on the basis of your words, your experience, your perspective of the world, the thing that you want to teach, how you say the thing. There is like a profound sense of, of, power that I think comes from that for sure. Um, I think in terms of, if I think about it more now that I'm like writing comedy, so I've been writing some sketch comedy in the quarantine, some of which I've worked with my writing partner um, to produce. And we're two black female women who are like writing these, writing these sketches, um, doing castings, directing them, um, telling people like, do not change my words, <laughs> you know, like you can play with whatever you want, but you know, and so there's even a certain power in that, that we have sort of been exploring for ourselves in particular and to also see how people react to us. And so even when we were, um, and, and a lot of our content is dealing with, um, identity and dealing with race and dealing with, you know, our experiences as black women in America. And so, um, we wanted to make sure that for uh, whether it's white actors who would work with us or otherwise, that they're comfortable working and, and getting direction from two black female women. And so mm -hmm. my um, writing partner was very um, specific in the questions that she like formulated to ask during those auditions before we even had them audition. And I was like, wow, I didn't even think about that. But that was like brilliant. Like, are you okay with this material? Are you comfortable? You know, she asked it in a much more eloquent way than what I'm doing now. But that was like, I think the first time where I really thought about power in comedy and in my, in, in, in content creation. So. That's, that's an aspect I hadn't even thought of, but you, you remind me of a story where um, when James Cameron was directing Aliens, um, it was an all British crew. And here was this Yank showing up and they did not respect him, right? Because he was American. And it's James Cameron. So he just basically yelled and shouted until he got what he wanted. But what puts me in mind, is like, okay, if British folks aren't going to respect, if, if a bunch of white British folks aren't going to respect another white dude just because he's American, imagine how hard it would be for a bunch of white folks to take direction from a black person or a black woman. <laughs> like there's going to be a subset of folks out there who can have an issue with that. <laughs> Michaela Cole could tell you all about it. <laughs> I don't know if you, I think, was it her MacArthur talk or she won, like, she got, she talked at, like, I guess, whatever is the highest thing there, but mm. like, she, and she's so candid about mm. 
her experiences. She talked about when she was doing chewing gum and they had most of the black actors just all in one trailer. Went to her producers and she said, you know what it looks like in there? A slave ship. And they all were like, (laughs) you can imagine the white fragility in the room at that point. (laughs) But she was like, I'm calling it what it is. And so, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, she's great. I, she's, she's amazing. I really, I really have a lot of respect for her and just, how transparent she wants Mm -hmm. to be about. And she calls it, I think she, I think it's like, and I don't want to misquote her, but I think she uses like the word like misfit or something. But basically she's sort of talking about, she's like, as I navigate this industry, I want to help to like, I want to help other folks who are outside of it, who want to be within it, understand how it operates and then begin to sort of shift it and change it the more that we participate, because that's what happens with collaboration. The more of us participate, the more of us have a voice, the very thing that we're creating is gonna shift and change. And that happens in content when we're developing content all the time. So, yeah. Um, That's a pretty good, uh, well, okay. So we're gonna segue into content strategy, but we do have a question that's still comedy related. I wanna throw in here and text, so I'm just gonna read it. Um, do you think that there are improv or comedic tools that apply to design or can be used? Hmm. I think, I mean, I think commonly people will always sort of reach for like, yes, and right. So like, yes, and is a principle within um, improv where like, you're always trying to build on whatever suggestion you hear. So, you know, typically if you go to an improv show, the way it gets started, they're like, we need something from the audience and like just scream out one word and they'll be like carrot and they'll never be like no we don't want to play with that somebody else you know what i mean (laughs) they're gonna say yes and here we go and so um i think just i think that's more of an attitude right being able to to come into conversations and and not um automatically shut down what people are are giving you because it doesn't work in in the pattern or in the paradigm or in the way that you expect or in the way that you want a thing to go because in improv you don't know how it's going to go you just have to be present for it so i would say that's like commonly the one that people reach for um i would also say like another it's like more so another principle but another principle would be just listening and responding Mm. like that's what improv is like if you're not if you're listening or you misheard you it it just kind of throws off the whole scene so i remember one time i was like in a training class and i think i could have sworn that the person had said something around like hockey and they didn't and I'm like I just barreled through the scene like I'm a hockey player and I actually run into someone too and they're like what are you what's happening so the teacher like stopped everything mind you the scene was already getting wild but she was like <laughs> what's going on here and I was and then we kind of broke down what happened and I was like oh okay I wasn't listening what I was doing what I the only thing that I actually was listening to is I really want to play in this scene I want to play in this scene. How can I show up in this scene? And so I heard whatever I guess I thought I heard and I inserted myself into the scene. So I think a lot of times just like that listening and responding. And I've, I've found that over time and 
my practice of my work, I've gotten much better with listening. And, and it's been so important to being able to invite my client to do more co-creating mm-hmm. with me rather than me like creating a thing for them simply because I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Tell me more about that. Okay, well, after you said all of this, what I'm hearing is blah, blah, blah. And it's making me want to. And so now like we're, we're actually building compared to like, I just want to do this thing for you. <laughs> you said a bunch of stuff and I'm going to take latch on to whatever best aligns to the thing I want to do. That has definitely, you know, just being able to actively listen and respond has helped um, so much. So I would say those two things. I can't, I'm trying to think from like, any other specific activity, but more principle, those two principles have um, informed how I work. So, yeah. And I think there's a fair amount of that on both sides, right? Cause I'm picturing, <laughs> I'm picturing like, uh, and feel free to steal this idea. In fact, I hope you do like uh, a, ske- <laughs> a sketch where it's like an improv group and like whatever the audience says, they keep steering it towards like this one thing that they clearly want to do. And it's sort of like, okay, give me a, a country. Uh, like, I don't know, uh, like uh, Japan. No, a little more European. Um, okay, England, like like closer to Denmark. Uh, okay, Denmark, fine. Okay, now give me a main character. Um, I don't know, um, uh, you know, a guy who's a uh, grocer, more like a prince. <laughs> okay, and like you can tell they're like narrowing it down to Hamlet because they just want to do Hamlet. <laughs> and I feel like I feel like sometimes that's what like some you know client meetings are like, where it's sort of like you know, okay, well, tell me the problem you're trying to solve. And, and like, you're trying to sort of do this divergent thinking and creative thinking. And it's sort of like, and eventually you realize, like, I just want you to build me a new homepage. Like that, like you can tell that like, that's what they you know, are steering you back towards. It's like, okay, fine. Let's just, okay, we'll do your thing. <laughs> like, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Whereas like, if we just sort of kind of kept it open and played, we could have gotten to this maybe bigger or this other space that like, we never realized and like improv has been a tool for myself and my writing partner to come up with like sketch ideas because of however we like showed up and some of them some of them might be like oh that's not really something some of them can be something but like you have to sort of like it's just a way to sort of generate what is possible and Mm. then based in based on like you know, certain constraints you have, then you can get a little bit more real. Like which one, and so if I think about that in the context of like our sketch, I'm like, okay, I see the funny thing about that. Oh, we could easily produce that. Oh, that makes sense. And then some things are more like, we could write it, but when we, in a different context, we could produce that differently. So like you can begin to prioritize rather than just like killing all the ideas to the, just to the one thing that you think is possible, so. Yeah. And I'll be honest, that's, that's how my career has gone, right? Like even the, this podcast was, okay, I could do a lot of, th- I have a lot of ideas. This one takes me an hour, like on a Friday, you know, back when I had Fridays off and I've already done the research. So we're going to start with this one. <laughs> yeah. exactly. and, then, like, and then what happened, you took all this amazing knowledge and you made an amazing book that everyone should go get. <laughs> well, thank you. I haven't even mentioned, thank you. I haven't even mentioned the book yet. I'm a terrible uh, podcaster. Go buy Design for Cognitive Bias. Out now from a book apart. I'll drop the link in later. Um, so so I do want to talk though. So here, here's a segue. So in the book, see, um, one of the things I talk about a lot is uh, plain language um, and how plain language, you know, 
can actually make things more trustworthy and believable, how people actually have better health outcomes when the communication about the thing they're trying to do is in plain language. Um, and so I, I have all this like research in there, but you're kind of living and breathing this stuff. So for, first, I want to sort of establish what do we mean when we say plain language? And then, and then we can talk about like what its benefits are and how you go about sort of trying to, to infuse it. Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the end of the day, plain language really is about using um, using 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 words and and terms and phrases that actually are going to be meaningful for the audience that you're talking to, and and in some cases the broadest audience that you possibly can talk to. Um, and so at, at the core, that is really how I see it. I think it also is making information much more e much more useful because people can actually e easily understand what they read. And so when we think about, when I think about that in my work, now that I'm working within government, there's actually like a law <laughs> that says anything in the, on the, on a government website or anything given out to the government has to be written in a plain language way. And they talk about what that means. So they're talking about um, sort of breaking up a paragraph and using bulleted lists or using numbered lists or like, so they, like all of us have to get trained. Like we have training on this and it's quite funny all the thoughts that many of the other content strategists I work on have about that tra training <laughs> because the way that we're, we we practice and make use of plain language in our, our work every day but it's it's being able to make make um whatever message that you're communicating intentionally meaningful it's doing it in an intentional way and I think that's the most important thing because I think some people believe if I'm um, and, 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 you know, especially because some of, some of the folks that I've been working with, um, are lawyers and other government workers and things like that. And you can imagine that there's what is like, they call government T's. So there's acronyms and, you know, uh, just ways of speaking that is very like unique to the government that if I tried to use it in another context, people would not understand, but yet it's their job to be serving the public. So you need to be speaking in ways that are meaningful for the public and yet still accurate for whatever it is that you're talking about and communicating about. And so I spend, a, I definitely spend a lot of my time trying to reconcile the two because a lot of times, particularly because, you know, it's sort of like my goal when I'm working with a government agency is to empower their teams to be writing in this way by the time that I leave. Not that I'm doing it and it's like, here you go, but that they can actually walk away and say, this is how I'm gonna shift my writing. And so in my process of training a lot of those folks, they'll say to me like, oh, well, Malika, I'm used to writing in this context for like emails and announcements and all these different things. But when you start talking about what needs to happen on the web, there's just like a shift in your in your brain that like needs to happen and i think part of it is making sure that you're keeping in mind the people that you are actually trying to write for and keeping in mind what they are simply trying to do not what you need to do to just kind of get it off your plate and out into the world but like what do they need to do and if you want to make your job easier and reduce the amount of inaccurate you know, not, not useful information you get in, 
right? Like you need to explain it to them in a way that's going to get you exactly the things that you need to process their benefit or process mm-hmm. their service. Or so it's like practicing plain language is it's, it, it seems like practically at the end of the day, it's like, Oh, writing more clearly writing more, you know, but at the end of the day, when we talk about its utility, it's really about getting the people the information they need to do whatever it is they need to do to provide you with whatever information you need to better serve them. So like when I talk about plain language in that way, people are like, got it, you know? Okay. So how, how do, how do I do this? (laughs) You know, I think it's more of that. When you start talking about it in terms of people, people really get it. And I think that's how we should start talking about plain language a lot more. Like, I think, I think that's, it's interesting. And the word you kept using there, meaningful, that to me is almost a better term. Like I get plain language as a term because more often than not, the plainest language ends up being the most meaningful for the largest subset of people. But the point isn't for it to be plain. The point is for it to be meaningful. And I think that's an interesting way to think about it because then you really do need to think about your audience, right? Because right. what's meaningful to you might not be meaningful to them. Like all language is meaningful. It just might not be meaningful to you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because it's like people people could look at something and be like, oh, well, that's easy to understand for me. And it's like, well, yeah, you went to law school. You have an advanced degree. Like you have been speaking in this particular way for a very long time. But if we're talking about the broadest group of people who may not have had those experiences, then we... You, 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 you got to write differently. You got to, you, you know, you got to think about that. Like I think about it, let me give you, let me give you this moment where I realized like, oh, I am not using plain language in my everyday conversation. I was having a conversation with somebody one time and <laughs> I was like, so yeah, you're, you've been telling me a lot about like what you're doing. He worked at this theater. I was like, you're, you're, you've been telling me a lot about um, this work and stuff and these programmings that you're putting together for this theater. But like, can you tell me a little bit more about how you plan to like operationalize that plan? And he was like, operationalize. <laughs> and mind you, Dave, we're like out getting coffee. Like it's a very casual, I am not in a business meeting. We're like chilling. And he's like, operationalize. <laughs> like, Malika, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, how do you plan to put that plan into practice? Like, that's. <laughs> I remember I was, I was watching um, John Cleese, uh, you know, do some interview or presentation or something. And I forget what got him on this topic, but he's like, in, in America, like they, they use these words like, you know, multiple. And it's, you know, when you have a perfect, when many is just sitting there <laughs> as a word, perfectly good word, like many is there, but you insist on saying multiple. <laughs> you know? right. like, oh yeah, we do that, don't we? <laughs> Although it's I'm funny. Not- oh no, go ahead. I was men- I was saying I'm noticing in the chat people sharing like um, readability guidelines and guides and stuff like that. Like that's been interesting too. I one of my um, and and I don't know what you think about this, but like I know one of my um, coworkers had like sometimes has a gripe with using like grade level to determine mm. like readability, and I don't know what your thoughts are about that. Um, but it's she's just like. You know, we, somebody had recommend using like a tool Hemingway and Hemingway like tells you, like it'll kind of analyze and say, oh, this is written at like a grade nine or eight or 12 reading level. And so like, I think one, one thing that um, when I was working on another 
projects one of my team members was suggesting to me it easier is like oh could we have a criteria that says this is plain language when it, it like the writing hits this level of a grade level and we like went back and forth like we could not determine and then that's when i was just like i think if we talk about it in the criteria of like it being meaningful it being this that's probably better but i also yeah. understand that desire to have something more like more metric more tangible than that so i don't know what are your if you had any it's yeah i i go back and forth to i like my my understanding is that the the reason people distrust like Heming, like the grade level part of things like hemingway and stuff like that 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 grade level thing is that the the science isn't exactly sound like there's a whole bunch of different stuff that goes into that final level and some of that stuff is sort of like oh we don't know if that's actually accurate um what i do use it for though so i don't i don't sort of in and of itself say oh sixth grade reading level okay if you hit that we're fine it's more that i use it more of as a comparative um tool competitive tool so i can look at like five different museum websites and run them through hemingway and say okay these are all counting as a six these are all counting as a 12. So I can at least say, okay, this is probably harder to process than that. Got it. But the thing that's at six, I'm not gonna guarantee is at the proper level, right? I think to get to that, I think you really do need to just go back to you know the drawing board of, okay, let's actually show this to some people and see if they can complete the task, right? <laughs> like, right. right. But the other, thing, the, other, the other thing I think is really interesting, and you can tell me if this has been your experience as well, so whenever I talk about plain language, I like to show people Randall Monroe's um, Thing Maker book. Have you seen this? I haven't seen this. Oh my God. It's so like, I got to send you a copy. Okay. Um, it's this big honking book, but um, <laughs> it's basically a bunch of just graphs or, or like drawings, like sketches of different, just hard to understand scientific concepts, right? So it might be like, this is how a rocket works. The trick is he's only using the thousand most common words in the English language. So he can't even say rocket. He has to say thing go upper, right? <laughs> and it's, what's amazing about it though, is what you realize is you, if you cannot explain a concept using just those thousand words, you don't completely understand it, right? Like the better you can explain it with more straightforward language, the better, the more likely it is that you have a deep understanding of the thing. And I always sort of like to like, I don't know that I rolled this out, but it's sort of like, when people, when people's egos get in the way of using plain language, I sort of like to, you know, gently remind them, well, if you can, like, if you want to, you know, beat the boss level of knowledge here of just how smart you are, well, then you should be able to communicate this without using the word operationalize, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think the, that last part that you're talking about is, is so key because I think a lot of times sometimes the words that we choose in the moment is also trying to communicate and express our power in that situation. So it's like, if I think about who I am, who, who I come into the room as and how I might be perceived, depending on who I'm speaking to, I might say, I'm, I'm I'm going to use language to say, yes, I do have a master's degree. And I, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. And so you might use, tend to use that language in that room to sort of command proficiency, to command power, to, to, to display your expertise. But I think, again, when we're talking about in a different context, so again, like, like some of the folks that I've been training, they're like, oh, I, I write. Like I've been writing emails and this and that, but now I need to write in this entirely new 
context, how does that need to shift? And that's what a lot of um, our, my focus has been in my training of like, how, how does that, how does that shift? And how can we make that um, almost become, eventually after doing it, become second nature for you? If I know we're going to post this out onto our site for the public or for each other as government workers communicating to the public, this is how we do it, you know? And like, to me, that's my barometer of like, yes, I did it. So like, I'm right now in, um, in the, in kind of in the magic and the thick of like putting this together and sort of testing that this context out working with government workers. And I'm like, wow, like if I could do it here, (laughs) then I felt it's like New York. If I can make it in government, (laughs) I can make it anywhere. (laughs) So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been quite exciting. Um, I did want to, I did want to circle back to something though, because, you know, again, we were, we've been talking about making something meaningful for the people that you are writing it for. And I think for me, Lately, what I've been thinking about and also challenging myself about or or something that has just come up, especially as we're communicating about, you know, COVID and all these different things is like, we can, it, it, oftentimes people are like, we are doing this for the American public. And so that is a very generic, like, but when you say that to different people, I, I should do this, we should do this as a study. But like, mm-hmm. if we said this to different people and they closed their eyes and I said, American public, who do you see? Are you asking me right now? Because I have an answer. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Fat, fat white guy. Like that is, if, if I'm completely honest, when you said American public, the first image that pops to my head, I, even, I can even tell you, it's like wearing like a button down shirt, but it's like untucked and the first couple buttons are unbuttoned and like, kind of like pant jeans. And he's standing outside and he's sweaty, taut out. So maybe standing in like a field, like, but, but it's like, you know, not green. Um, and that's just a, what immediately pops into my head. Like, I think right. honestly, maybe like a Midwestern fat dude. Got yeah. It. That's what white guy. Like that's, but, but I, but I agree. Like, I would love to see like the sort of IAT, um, IAT is just an implicit association test, but like the gut reaction, right? right. The gut reaction on American, just the, just the word American, right? What pops into your head and I'll bet you dollars to donuts, it is almost never an immigrant. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you're with immigrants. (laughs) Although even then, it's not clear, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot of internalized, I'm black, I didn't picture a black guy. (laughs) Right, and so it's like, going back to design, if I'm thinking about this as a designer, if I'm thinking about this as a writer, and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm like, write this for the American people, and this is like my reference point, or maybe what I look like, or maybe what, my friends or my dad or my whoever, like, are you really writing it for the people that we're serving for real? And so like, that is something that all of us, even if you say I work in human centered design, well, you better be thinking about humans all the time (laughs) and all different kinds, like literally like folks that you don't even think about. Like someone had brought up something, I forget specifically what it was, but it was talking about um, just Native Americans and folks who represent tribes and like, how did they get information about stuff? Not about how they get it. I mean, mm-hmm. more so making sure that they're getting the benefits and the services and the things that they need and it's being communicated to them in a way that is 
understandable, accessible for them. And um, so that has been like a conversation that um, I've seen had. Um, and, and so, and I, and I remember when somebody had brought that point up, I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never, I never thought about that, right? Like I'd never thought about that in the context of that. But if we shifted that language, and this is why I, there's certain folks that I really enjoy working with at 18F because some, some people are like, let's not use American public. Let's use people living in America. Ah. Now, that, that is like, well, who's living in America right now? Now immigration comes into the country. Oh, conference. yeah. And you I'll tell that, you, even with that phrase, the image in my head shifted. And it wasn't one person, actually. I started seeing a map in my head with lots of people. And I'm like, I can't pin that down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's like when I've worked with some folks, that was a language choice that was made on like a we on a website that was for the public. It was like, we serve people living in America who, <laughs> who may experience discrimination, this, that, whatever. Here's what you can do. And so just that shift was everything you know so i think and, and like your book brings this up a lot but it's like how we our use of words like our use of words when we are communicating to another designer to create a thing just like it can that can add bias to the thing that we're creating unintentionally but when we even shift our language to each other that like other designer who's like yeah people living in america like it's that shifted everything for me. I was like, yeah, I need to make sure I'm now imagining all these other people who will open their phone up and like, look at the thing that we're making. Like, does Rosa, Cuban, <laughs> English is her second language. Her husband owns a bodega. Like, you know what I mean? Does she get it? Right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this person over here, would they get it? Someone who's like me, would I get it? You know what I mean? All like, it just, like you said, it just opens up your mind to be like, do they get it? And I, I think that's the other thing too. Like my background before I came into content strategy was pharmaceutical sales. And so as a sales rep, I was like face to face with people every day. And so it was sort of my job to like gather up, okay, here's what I want to say to this position. Let me go in, say it. And yet at the same time, I'm seeing the very patients that he would be prescribing medications for or treating or what have you. And so like, there's something, I think for me personally, it did something to, to me in terms of being more considerate, being more intentional, being more thoughtful. Because if I was sitting in the waiting room and, you know, and a patient is like sitting there and we're together, it's just us. Like, I remember this moment, it's an older gentleman and he's like, oh, okay. So you, you do pharma sales. He's like, oh, what, what you got? What you got in there? And I'm like, oh, you know, I tell him what I had, which was a medicine for arthritis. And he's like, yeah, I got bad knees. And, da, 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 da. and he goes into this whole thing. So now when I go to talk to my doctor, I'm holding that in my mind. And everything. Mm. that is so different than when I got into content strategy or got into doing tech and digital stuff where we talk about users, but we don't see who they are. Even when we do user tests, we just see uh, Carol, 56. She lives in, I don't know, Oklahoma cool. What does she got to say about the thing we built? And then depending on what she says, well, what does Carol from Oklahoma know? You know what I mean? So it's just like, 
<laughs> so oh, it's yeah. just like <laughs> these things are so important. Like who we hold in our mind mm. definitely dictates who we're creating for. It has to, you know. Like, but it's it, it, and it's it, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with like you know, are you there to collaborate or are you there to just see through your vision and you're only going to pick and choose? I mean, it's just straight up confirmation bias. Like, are you just there to pick and choose? You know, what does Carol from Oklahoma know? Unless she likes the product, in which case she's a genius, right? So, but I feel like that that collaborative, curious spirit is the one that's going to get you, you know, actually wanting to go out and, and sit in the room with people and get to know people and be more expansive about your definition of people. That's it. What I find interesting about the phrase people who live in America is that it follows a pattern that we've been trying to adapt to when we talk about, you know, uh, rather than talk about the homeless, the phrase people experiencing homelessness, right? Again, that's a big shift. And the, and the biggest shift there is what word did I start with? People. <laughs> First, I want you to see that they're a person. Then I want you to start talking about circumstance, which again, circumstance, not identity, right? Yeah. Which is, again, a very tough thing for us cognitively. We like to look at somebody living on the street and be like, oh, they probably made poor life choices, <laughs> right? Exactly. And, and now, we've, now we've managed to other them in a way where we don't have to feel bad. Right, yeah. <laughs> or and, question and anything. we don't want to end up like you. We're exactly, like, exactly. Oh, There's a yeah. distancing where I don't want to ever end up like that. So clearly I have control over whether I end up like that. So I'm going to make it about your choices and not your circumstances, right? And then it's really hard to think about systems. So again, I'm just going to make it about your individual choice and not about an entire system that has goes all the way back to slavery. That's a bit more to think about every time you see someone on the street, right? Yes, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. So I'm going to choose the easier choice, right? I got a lot to do. I'm a busy, busy guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But but I think I think that all come, ties back though to kind of what you're talking about, and I think that um, I'll just be honest. I think there's a certain you know bigotry in how so um, I'm going to blame Lindsey Grow gives an amazing talk about um, basically. She doesn't use this term, but basically like um, hostile design, <laughs> for lack of a better word. But, um, but one of the things she points out is there are some government websites that are there so that you can, you know, pay something you owe. And you compare that to the UX of a government website where you're going to get some money. <laughs> like, let's say unemployment benefits or something. And it's just curious, <laughs> not, not naming names here. <laughs> <laughs> but it's curious how there are many cases in which the government's uh, websites, and not just government, like in general, but websites that are trying to take your money tend to have a better user experience and be more frictionless <laughs> than, say, government websites or other websites that are trying to give you money. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, right, you have to also, I mean, I can't get through one of these episodes without saying the word, but capitalism, right? You have to also take into account, okay, well, what is motivating us in terms of making that decision to say, I'm going to actually focus on this person as a person and kind of deal with what's meaningful to them versus what's meaningful to me. Um, like, I feel like that choice doesn't happen by accident. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I totally agree with you. Yeah. And it, it so it's part of the reason why I think, I think being able to co-create a thing is so important 
because somebody is going to help you to identify the things that you do take for granted that mm. you wouldn't recognize. And that's why it's so important to do. It's just so often that why that might be preached about, I, I have not seen it in, in, in my practice of UX. Mm. Like I haven't had that experience where we were so human centered that the other than let's test to see how they like the solution we made for them, right? Like yeah, yeah. even that, even, even, even that word, you know, I'm trying to get out of like solution and being like approach to that problem. Here's one yeah. approach. No, if we solved it, but like yeah, yeah, yeah. we're approaching that. I'm trying to like train myself out of that. So I think also too, it's just like, you know, thinking about the language that we're using when we're creating and thinking about those opportunities when we actually can bring people in more outside of just like the standard user research of we're interviewing you and we're asking you questions. It's like, how, how then can you like come back and actually help them have folks help you shape the thing that you're putting together? Like, I don't know. I haven't been on projects like that. Yeah. And, and I gotta say, like, I, I am a huge like 18F fan um, and I think that's like, they're, they're one of the, they're one of the, the good folks, right? <laughs> they're one of the folks who are pushing people, I think more in this more service oriented direction, same with uk.gov. Like, I think there's this whole interesting government movement or the U S digital services. Oh my God. Um, mm-hmm. that are really doing interesting work there that do seem to be motivated to like, like we're here to serve the people. Yes. Um, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That has been, I mean, that that has first and foremost been what I've seen in my experience um, being there for sure. And I think it's, I think it's important. And it's like the more that, you know, these organizations can work with other agencies to begin to shift. Like it's, it's crazy. Cause when we think about uh, the word innovation, I think we always want to have like bots and like, uh, you know, like other stuff like that, you know, art, you know, all that other stuff. But I think sometimes do innovation could be simply as like we're thinking innovatively or differently we're approaching the things that we're doing differently so i feel like innovation sometimes doesn't ultimately have to equate itself in a technology but it can actually equate itself into how we approach our work and and then that culture allows us to be more inventive you know Mm. what i mean so like that's what i feel organizations like 18F does where it's helping to help think more innovatively about how we approach putting together digital services. And I think that's the part that is most rewarding. But I think the other part about it is the amount of empathy that people have for who they're serving, you know, so which are people living in America? <laughs> yeah, no, that that's awesome. Um, I just realized we're out of time. <laughs> I'm having such a good time oh, talking to you. I'm like, how did that happen? I, I know it's like uh, seven o'clock already. So I, I just want to thank you very much. Um, and we're going to definitely have to talk again. Yeah. Uh, we still have so much. When you, Call me back when you finish the boys season two. Oh my God. <laughs> Gosh. We got, we got oh stuff God. to talk about. We got I stuff know, to talk about. I know. Oh I probably, it probably <laughs> won't be until like next month, but. No, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah. I'm going to okay. need time to process. Happens. <laughs> I'm gonna need to take a break and process it all. So that's fine. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but Blake, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, and thank you for everybody that you know came out <laughs> to to join us for this conversation. It's been so good. 
uh, to participate with you and chat with you, Dave. It's been great. And yeah. Awesome. So for the Cognitive Bias Podcast, I'm your host, David Dolan-Thomas, and we will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks.